So we've passed one month in this retreat, one-third of the retreat. And time is a, is a convention, and there's chronological time, conventional time, and psychological time, memory. So if you notice how time works in, in, on a retreat, that if you're Afternoons aren't really going well, and you're falling asleep, and it's hard to meditate. So on the afternoon can be very, very long, very, very long indeed. If you have a good meditation, it seems very quick. And and the capacity to 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 know this, the sort of psychological time, and not kind of buy into it with a lot of thought, just to know time as something which is quick, something very slow and begin to not identify with time in that way, but identify with the timeless, which is the awareness of time. This you can do in a retreat if you're busy at work and so on. It's, you just got to get on with life and time zips by. But, but in a retreat, we have much more, we have a great opportunity to look at life in a much more refined way. So you, after one month, you can... You can look at the month and you can assess it, you can judge it, you can say, my practice is going well, my practice is not going well, I'm enjoying it, I'm not enjoying it, I wish you here, I wasn't here, or whatever. And that's very much based on time. So, but that which is aware, which is aware, like a thought that I'm not getting anywhere, is timeless. And, and that's very, very important because sometimes in meditation we do feel like we're accomplishing something and sometimes we feel we're gone back three steps and this kind of sense of uh, success and failure and accomplishment and confidence and lack of confidence. These are very uh, ordinary mind states which we get caught up into very, very easily and create a sense of self around them. So the... the the skill of the contemplative to see something like a feeling of confidence and, and have the have the wisdom around it to see when it changes into a lack of confidence that's ordinary rather than think confident because confidence is a very happy state isn't it confidence gives you it feels great you're moving nicely in the practice and so on so it's very desirable and the lack of confidence is of course uh, not desirable but that which is beyond confidence and lack of confidence is, of course, awareness. And that's the only freedom from both of those. And so constantly that's what we're trying to do on a retreat, is, is bring us back to that which is beyond the dualities of emotions and dualities of success and failure. And I've been, I've been mentioning these ideas of watchfulness and availability. So I'd like to read where I got that from originally. And I read this hundreds of times myself, and I usually read it once on a retreat. I find it very pithy and very... I go back to it again and again and again as a, as a contemplation. So this is from John Klein. Be who you are. 
and I'll read it a couple of times because it's very, it's very dense. We must therefore begin with the analysis of desire. What do I want? Can my desire be gratified by the possession of objects? Objects, are they what I seek? Do they contain what I seek? Let us observe what happens when a desire is satisfied. We see that the gratification of a desire is nothing but its death, and that therefore, when we are in search of bliss, we really are pursuing nothing but the death of desire. This proves that our ultimate desire is non-desire. But non-desire appears to our normal consciousness as being blankness, and yet it is in this blankness that we must try to probe with open eyes so as to discover its true nature. In fact, this nothingness is experienced by everybody in infinitesimal gaps which occur between thoughts. Each time one desire dies, giving place to the next. If from time to time we experience moments of stillness and deep attention turn towards these gaps of nothingness, little by little the emptiness will reveal itself as being full and finally a supreme plenitude. One should adopt this attitude as often and as clearly as possible, thereby allowing it to be more penetrating and effective. With this in view, one should be available, ceaselessly questioning oneself, calmly observing one's own behavior without passion. A new and non-objective outlook may then progressively prevail on us and we may come to understand that we are not the ego. We may then, with a complete and new awareness, taste the unexpected flavor of those moments of non-desire, which will be revealed as plenitude, silence, and peace. This flavor, which is only fleeting at first, will become more constant and vigorous until that time when it will appear as a reality which carries us, enfolds us, in, and is our very substance. The bliss which is then experienced is entirely different from what we usually call happiness. For at this level of consciousness, one cannot even say, I am happy, since a consciousness which establishes a distinction between a subject and an attribute would be a dual consciousness. We are now speaking of, quote, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. We have mentioned watchfulness and availability. It must be understood that these must be perfect in their quality. The quality and the purity of attention which result are the essential conditions of success. The exercise of this pure attention implies the complete elimination of all elements from the past, thus allowing the authentic purity of the present to be completely grasped. 
We must forget everything and wait, yet wait for nothing. This entails a state of complete receptivity, which seizes and is open to the complete, eternal, and perfect newness of each moment. It is also important that the body should be in a state of perfect relaxation, as the slightest attraction or repulsion results in tensions which impede the purity of attention. So, let's go through that again. Um, so, for me, this is, this is another... Um, this is a commentary on the Third Noble Truth. Because I, I always, when I read other literature... I, I, uh, I always has obviously I have a, a Buddhist framework, and then I, I, I really enjoy that seeing. Okay, where does this kind of a statement fit in with my understanding of, of Theravada Buddhism? And so this is for me a very a profound reflection on, on the third noble truth. And if you remember, the third noble truth is that. First noble truth, there's suffering. Second noble truth, there's a cause. Third noble truth, there's an end of suffering. And the end of suffering is the abandonment of desire. Non-desire. The relinquishment, the abandonment, the letting go. Of bhavatana, vibhavatana, kamatana. Right? So then you, you know, you then... When you, when you have a framework like that, when you've, when you've studied a bit and you've really kind of contemplated the... Theravada Buddhism, and you've got you've got some sense of its structure and and why it's pointing the way it does point. Then this kind of reading is very well. You've got you've got a standpoint from which to question this kind of reading. If you don't have any background, if you have no real kind of intellectual framework that you're coaching your 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 experience through or, or your investigation through, then then you can get lots of inspiring things. You know, that's inspiring. This is inspiring. But somehow you just kind of... You get inspired by something, but you don't really contemplate it deeply. It's just like, wow, that's great. I like that. And then there's an, oh, I like that too. Whereas the contemplative mind has a, has a, sense, of, has a sense of direction in its contemplation. Because there's a sort of understanding of what, what the project is and what the problem is. And and that's that's the important part of actually having a framework for for um, Buddhist practice, rather than it just being um, you know just having readings where you're inspired by Rumi or Nisargadatta or Muji or you know, all kinds of other inspiring teachers. Yeah? So um, when you have that, then this kind of a reading uh, kind of challenges or, or gives you a framework. And you question anyway. Let's do it again. We must therefore begin with the analysis of desire. Now think of the third noble truth. Those of you who are familiar with that. What do I want? Can my desire be gratified by the possession of objects? So when we talk about objects, we're talking about, in Theravada sense, the five khandas. So it's not just about computers and clocks and things, is it? It's uh, emotional things, thoughts, bodily feelings, inner, outer, and so on. So it's the five khandas. We say it that way. Can my desire be gratified by the possession of objects? Objects, are they what I seek? Do they contain what I seek? Let us observe what happens when a desire is satisfied. We see that the gratification of a desire is nothing but its death. And therefore, when we are in search of bliss, we really are pursuing nothing but the death of desire. Eat an ice cream cone. 
20 ice cream cones. You can't do it. But at some point, probably within two licks or two bites, you get bored with it. You think about some. But rather than seeing the end of desire, one chooses another object because one's orientation is towards objects. That's where satisfaction seems to come. But if it was a true object, you could just keep licking the ice cream cone forever. But you can't. You know, one, how many ice cream in one? Two would be a lot. When you're a kid, you could do three. Anyway, can my desire be gratified by the possession of objects? Objects are, are they what I seek? Do they contain what I seek? Let us observe what happens when a desire is satisfied. We see that the gratification of a desire is nothing but its death, and that therefore... When we are in search of bliss, we really are pursuing nothing but the death of desire, third noble truth. This proves that our ultimate desire is non-desire. The non-desire appears to our normal consciousness as being blankness, and yet it is in this blankness that we must try to probe with open eyes so as to discover its true nature. In fact, this nothingness is experienced by everybody in infinitesimal gaps which occur between thoughts each time one desire dies, giving place to the next. So we've been joking a lot about the gap on this retreat. And, and that's why I've been sort of emphasizing, notice the end of a thought. And, and the sense of like really noticing the moment, of, of actually claiming the moment by, by touching the moment. So if you're, it's just like, like eating food, um, um, we get wonderful meals put out. It's really very um, delicious and nutritious and smells great. And, and then we go and we get our food. And after a few bites, the mind's thinking, right? Yeah, okay. Oh, that was good. That was good. And I was like, and the mind goes off. What to do? Well, what you do in, in mindfulness training is then you take the object that you're participating in, food, and you take that object and you use it as a way of really touching reality. In other words, chewing rice and knowing the texture of the chewing. Not to force yourself to be mindful in some kind of way, I mustn't think, but rather to touch the reality of this moment. Not because you are enthralled by the object, because you realize that the knowing of the object is non-desire. So you touch the object with non-desire. You chew for the sake of chewing. <laughs> um, you, 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 you break the thinking pattern of, I'm going to do and blah, 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 in the mind, and just do what you're doing. You always say that, don't we? You know, wash the dishes, wash the dishes, if you can eat, eat, and so on. But actually, it's very profound to actually do that. To, and, 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 and so, like, in, on a retreat, like, Theravada Buddhism is a very odd kind of, religious institution because it's one of the few kind of orthodox religions where, where, where food is not a celebratory thing. We're grateful, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the good meals that we're offered, but notice it's a kind of like, in monastic life, it's a, it's a quiet thing. It's a meditative thing. It's a contemplative thing where we're encouraged to uh, eat in silence and, and to know what's going on. And then if you use that and you see, well, it's not about just the desire for good food. We, we need to eat. So there's desire as a natural part of our bodies. 
in our minds, but but we actually use that to actually calm the mind, and we're, we're and, and and feed the body and, and have a nutritious meal. But you can actually use this very mundane thing of chewing rice and and tasting fruit and so on as a way of actually calming the mind. Now that's not to matter. Like sometimes you get ideas around mindfulness. Well, if you if you eat the orange, you'll really experience the orange. That's a sort of sensual take on mindfulness. So the more you're with it, you're going to really taste that orange. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, for two bites. And your mind starts thinking again. So it's not about, it's not about sense indulgence. It's about awareness with a sense object and, and non-desire. So you begin to like experiment with that. You use, you use, you use the meal as a way of functioning from not. So in the first, there's desire. You you go and you pick what you like. You think, that's nice. I'll have a little bit of that and so on. Maybe take a bit too much of this and then you feel regretted or whatever. It's on your plate and then you start to eat it. Then your mind just starts thinking. Usually. Unless you're a real kind of foodie. Uh, most, I think, you know, you kind of have a few bites. And, and in normal, normal company, you start talking. Which is Which is fine. You start talking, then and you bite. Oh, that's really delicious! Lovely, lovely recipe, Mary. And then, <laughs> and then you talk again, right? That's what people do. But but you know, monastic life is much much different because we're trying to use we're trying to use these very ordinary situations, not as kind of horrible control your mind, don't think exercises, but actually exercises in non desire. And and when you do non desire with an object. It emphasizes the knowing. And in the knowing is where you find the peace of the mind. So some people will, you know, they'll, they'll kind of do all kinds of uh, food trips on themselves in monastic life. And some of them do it for health, but some of them, they want to kind of get rid of their desires, which is okay. But desire is natural. There's nothing wrong with wanting this or that. But to actually get to the point where you can, you know, like, be with with desire to know desire is desire and and not make it a problem just see it as an object and see it cease see its cessation if from time to time we experience moments of stillness and deep attention turn towards these gaps of nothingness little by little the emptiness will reveal itself as being full and finally a supreme plenitude so how do we experience moments of stillness and deep attention? We have to know it's the end of thought. And, and I, was, I was talking to several people about the kind of analogy I was getting is you, you, you're, you're driving a car in a, in a country road and it's a four-way stop and there's no traffic and you can see. You don't come to a full stop, just going to roll on. You kind of slow down and you look around and you roll on. Whereas, whereas noticing those points of emptiness is a full stop. A full stop. You, you really notice the end of thought. And you don't just roll on into a kind of, well, I wonder why I'm thinking so much. Maybe I should do another, maybe I should do this. This kind of half-baked thinking, kind of here, kind of not there. You want this kind of crisp clarity in the moment. And you do it with very ordinary things. So if you're, if you're doing walking meditation, your mind starts wandering and blathering on and so on. You, you stop and you just you really feel your feet. They're really, really simple, but really feel them. You can be with the floor, its coldness and its hardness, and you'll notice that's the gap. 
not because you're looking for the gap, but, but you now you're in, in the reality of the way things are. You're not just rolling on one thought leading to another thought leading to another. You know, you're just with, with the feet touching the ground. And then you taste that bit of stillness. You just notice it. But that doesn't come from desire. It actually comes from non-desire, from attention. So it's a, a kind of quality of attention he's saying here. Quality of attention is to be watchful and available. As long as I'm mulling something, or as long as I'm looking for something in my meditation. I mentioned that earlier too. As long as I'm trying to find something in the walking meditation, I've missed it. Nothing to find. There's to be, but there's nothing to find. So then I, I do walking meditation. I have to find, where's that stillness? How can I find that stillness? And it's just desire. It's just desire. But if you just really touch the floor, feel the floor, with non-desire, just like you chew the rice with non-desire, you come to the stillness. It's always there. It's always there. So, if from time to time we experience moments of stillness and deep attention, turn towards these gaps of nothingness, little by little, the emptiness will reveal itself as being full and finally as supreme plenitude. One should adopt this attitude as often and as clearly as possible thereby allowing it to be more penetrating and effective. With this view, with this in view, one should be available, ceaselessly questioning oneself, calmly observing one's own behavior without passion. And I would suggest, I would suggest there the questioning isn't really in thought, it's in, 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 in uh, investigation, which we call Dhammavijaya. It's kind of curiosity about what's going on in your mind and the, and the letting go of thought and the, the total commitment to the present moment. A new and non-objective outlook. A non-objective outlook, it's like, it's not about the object. It's not about the object, it's about the knowing of all objects as change. A new and non-objective outlook may then progressively prevail on us. And we may come to understand that we are not the ego. And what is the ego? That's just thinking... I shouldn't be this, I should be that, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. Why do you do that to me? I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to talk to him. I should have talked to him. No, 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 I should have said that. No, 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 no. That's his thought. It's just on and on and on. And then in a moment you notice it. And that's, that's cessation. It's gone. And then you listen to that silence. You really listen. Feel the body. It's gone. And then, and then so you can see it takes a tremendous amount of Patience. And patience is usually what's missing. Patience just to kind of notice the gap again and again and again. And start to go deeply into it. So again, we may then, with a complete new awareness, taste the unexpected flavor of these moments of non-desire, which will be revealed as being plenitude, silence, and peace. This flavor, which is only fleeting at first, will become more constant and vigorous until that time when it will appear as a reality which carries us, enfolds us, and is our very substance. So the silence of awareness then becomes your real home. So this is what I mean by the uh, refuge, Buddha knowing Dharma. That's silent knowing of reality as it is. The bliss which is then experienced is entirely different from what we usually call happiness. For at this level of consciousness, one cannot even say, I am happy, since a consciousness which establishes a distinction between a subject and an attribute would be a dual consciousness. We are now speaking of the peace of God which passeth understanding. 
St. Paul. So when you, when you touch the floor in walking meditation, is there really a me and a, and a floor? Is there kind of extra element? You know, like, like a bit of gold or something called a me? Is it really there? And if you attend to the feeling of the floor, you can't find any extra bit. There's feeling, there's pressure, there's heat, uh, there's sound, there's all the candles are operating. But is there an extra bit called me knowing this? Or there's just is there just knowing of, of change? And if you really attend to that in that in the present moment, really attend to that, you'll see there isn't an extra bit. It's just the way it is. And that's the silence of emptiness. We have mentioned watchfulness and availability. So I like to use that a lot, as you might have noticed. We have mentioned watchfulness and availability. It must be understood that these must be perfect in their quality. The quality and the purity of attention, which result, are the essential conditions of success. And that to me is very important because it's not about the object. So if I'm, if I'm experiencing just old karmic memories of, of some hurtful situation that, that, that um, is deeply embedded in my mind, now that's just the object. But the quality of attention can know that. It can know. So the, so the memory might be quite vindictive. You know, it can be quite petty. Uh, it could be quite silly and childish. No manner of things can come up. But that's just the object. But the quality of attention can be watchful and available. You know, I, can, I can have the most um, cruel thoughts or mundane thoughts or... or, or surprisingly old, old memories come up. But that's not the problem. That's just an object. That's not the problem. But the craving mind thinks that's the problem. That I shouldn't have these thoughts. That I should have worked it through. I shouldn't feel jealous. Because we, had, we think the problem is to get the objects all kind of lined up in a nice, neat way. But no, the objects are not where it's at. The objects are simply... Objects according to karma, you know, according to gender, according to weather, according to age, according to all kinds of manner of things. But the knowing, the awareness, is not an object. And that's what you're constantly trying to wake up to. So the quality of attention does not, it's not dependent on the quality of the object. It depends more on understanding, more like, more on wisdom. When you understand that it's not about the pursuit of objects, you understand non-desire, then when all emotional objects, social situations, physical pain, you know, difficult things come up, you, you, you have more and more insight. Well, it's not about the pain, it's about the quality of attention. And it's certainly, it's hard when there's pain, um, there's lots of desire. And that's kind of the way it's set up, unfortunately. And when there's lots of pleasure, then there's the hope to keep that going, and then there's the memory of pleasure. And so pleasure and pain keep us enthralled with objects. But mostly it's just, um, you know, pleasure and pain are, are pretty neutral, and we're just thinking all the time, basically. Every now and then, you know, you step on a nail, or um, you have an ice cream cone, or whatever. But mostly it's just, just random thinking, one thought after another thought, blah, 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 blah. And so there's a lack of kind of definition, I suppose, and clarity and attention to, to the way things are. And so that's why we're always encouraged um, to try to really, really kind of 
get yourself in the moment with whatever you're doing, whatever mundane thing you're doing. So, so actually, like making a determination to do the dishes, really, really um, um, grounded in, in in the experience of doing dishes. But not again. I keep saying this, not in a kind of way, slowly, mindfully, because that's zombie life. But, but rather refocused, just just doing this, do it fast, do it good, do it efficiently, find it, but really in the moment, in the moment, aware, aware, aware. So then you're emphasizing the awareness rather than the object. You still have to get it done. You still have to get it done, and, and but to do it kind of like fully like that. And then you watch, you watch like the very, the very sense of trying to get something done and the kind of horrible restlessness that creates, this kind of running to the next event. So you finish the dishes and then run to the next event and then you've got nothing to do. <laughs> you get bored <laughs> but just kind of you notice like the mind going somewhere no no I'm doing this now rushing to the next no no I'm doing this now so you're kind of really training the mind to be focused in the present moment with the way things are not to control things but to, re- to kind of create this this sense of the, 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 the knowing is the refuge to know to, and, and to come to that silence of mind the exercise of this pure attention implies the complete elimination of all elements from the past, thus allowing the authentic purity of the present to be completely grasped. And I would say all elements of the past in the sense of a self-thinking. You can, I don't think you can, you, you can never eliminate memory. Memory comes and goes. But when memory knows as a present moment of uh, condition, as a thought, as an emotion, then it's not me dwelling in the past or looking for the future. It's just the knowing of a sankara coming up in the present moment as memory. So memory has the qualities of past in it, but it's known in the present moment. Um, and that, all traditions say that, right? I always say, come on, get in the moment, be in the moment. The exercise of this pure attention implies the complete elimination of all elements from the past, thus allowing the authentic purity of the present to be completely grasped. We must forget everything and wait, yet wait for nothing. This entails a state of complete receptivity, which seizes and is open to the complete, eternal and perfect newness of each moment. And that's very hard because many people, you know, they, they get to a state where the mind's quite quiet and, they, and someone asks me, I forget who it was, and they say, well, what next? And there's desire in time. What, what, I, what should I do? Rather than trusting in this, like, waiting, this deep sense of presence, what should I do? What then? And so there's a me looking for a, a, a process or looking for a, um, a technique or, or a guarantee. Well, if I do this here, then at 4.30 I'll have enlightenment, that kind of negotiation and so on. But, but to actually just know that, that that very sense of having to do something is a sankara, is a sense of me, is ego. And see the restlessness of that and, and then wait, wait, but wait for nothing, as he says. So this entails a state of complete receptivity. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Where, where the the kind of assertive part of our mind, the desire part, is always asserting something, figuring something out. You look at like like intellect trying to figure something out, it just keeps mulling the problem over. It's not receptive. You 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 find maybe you're you know, you're thinking about some some emotional state is starting to stir your mind up and then try to figure it out. 
Right? Why, why am I doing that? Why, I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I should. Um, what kind of practice could I do, Bhante? So I don't do this. And, and your mind's not really receptive, doesn't have the patience just to say, well, it's just stuff. That's all it is. Just let it be what it is, totally. Be present to it. Let it arise. Stay for a while and cease. So again, patience is very much the, 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 the lacking. So this entails a, a state of complete receptivity, which ceases and is open to the complete, eternal, and perfect newness of each moment. It is also important that the body should be in a state of perfect relaxation, as the slightest attraction or repulsion results in tensions which impede the purity of attention. And that's hard. You know, to do a lot of sitting practice and not have uh, pain sort of bothering and so on. So I do recommend the lying practice if you can get that going. But try to get a posture where you're, 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 you're awake and alert, but it's a sense of ease in the body. That's very hard to develop, a sense of ease in your meditation, and yet you're awake. Too much ease and you, you, know, you fall asleep. And then, you know, you th- this is also, if you, if you think about the Noble Eightfold Path, what right effort is. This is very subtle ways of describing right effort. And, you know, we can talk about these subtleties on a retreat. And, and, and you know, words like that, receptivity, uh, availability, you know, they're, they're about non-desire. They're, they're not about getting something. And they're very much, very much in line with the Third Noble Truth, that the the cessation of suffering is not attachment to, to greed, hatred, and delusion, not attachment to bhava, tanavi, bhava, tana, kama, tanha, the relinquishment, abandonment of tanha. And what would that be? If I abandon the desire for objects, what happens? Well, then I'm open, present, receptive to the way things are. And that's hard to do because objects are pleasant and unpleasant. They come and they go, they attract you, and then we have the habits of attraction, repulsion, trying to get rid of, and, and that whole difficulty of our karma, the way our karma works. So if you have like a, a, repeat, a repeated pattern of, of, of emotional stuff coming up, just keep using that as a way of establishing awareness. Like learn how to establish awareness with your feet touching the ground. Really, really kind of like stop. Just stop the rolling and come to a full stop. And just, just feel your feet touching the ground and listen. And get a sense, that silence there. Just get a sense, that's it, okay. And then if you if you're, um, have some kind of emotional stuff coming up, you say, what is it? What's this emotion really like? And this kind of direct perception of something, rather than it being mediated by thought and, and analysis and it being a kind of second-hand experience because it's now in thought. Like, we go to it if you're feeling just ticked off at someone or... or, or disappointed in yourself or guilty about something. What is guilt? And what's it like? Like, like go to it, like the flowers. You know, before you say that's a white flower or a chrysanthemum, just say, what what is that experience of flower, the direct contact with a visual image, perception? What is it like before I mediate it with a self and a thought and so on? What's it really like? So learn how to do that with visual things. So if I look at the carpet, I let that come to me, receptive. My analytical mind loves to think, how many knots and so on, so I can do that. But now I'm just doing direct perception. In the scene, there's just a scene. In the herd, there's just a herd. In the sense, there's just a sense. You go directly to it and learn how to do that. Then then do uh, um, cold. Go outside, have a good coat. 
and just feel the cold on your arm, just feel the cold on your face and stop the mind. Don't go to thought. Just learn how to really get into that gap. Then if your mind is, is um, creating some, some kind of repeated pattern of, of problem solving or problem making, whatever, uh, take the thought deliberately. Let's say I'm, 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 I'm worried about the finances of the monastery, which I'm not. Um, we're doing fine, but I'm. Well, gosh, are we paying our bills? No, I don't know what's going on. And then stop. That's worry. And take worry and think it deliberately for a thought. We're going down the tube. Before you think it, you know you heard this many times. Before you think it, notice the gap. Notice the silence. Think it deliberately. I am a hopeless case. And then notice afterwards. The gap. So really notice that the silence of the mind, the mind, the mind which isn't projecting ego, ideas, and so on. Do it quite deliberately. So you can use visual forms. You can use tactile forms. Just take like heat in the hands. Just feel heat. So if I do that, I just hold one hand on the other. To actually feel the heat without comment, what do I have to do? I have to stop thinking. And I just have to just rest my attention on that feeling. Now I'm not. I'm not, it's not out of desire, then you don't get it. Where's the heat? <laughs> it's more just, well, what is warmth? Or what is tactile sensation? What's that like? And to actually notice it, you have to stop thinking. Right? You do that, you stop thinking. The ego's gone. Is there, a, is there a separate me now? Is there that tactile feeling and a separate kind of piece called me? Or is there just the knowing of that? I don't. I just see silence and the and the and the and the, and the uh, experience of contact. I don't know about you. If I think about it, I wonder what he's talking about. Or uh, am I feeling that? Am I really feeling heat? Then you're in self. You thought. So do it with the senses in, in ways which are not so super meditative, really. No big deal. Because quite often when we meditate, we just go into habits of thinking, unfortunately. <laughs> but just learn of what, what that contact with life is, anything. So a sound, say, you know, kind of just like if you, if you hear a, a helicopter coming over or a plane or something coming over, and then just stop and listen. And, and see in that listening, that pure, pure perception, that direct contact, it's amazing. The mind's just stopped. And you notice the gap. So do it something like do something very simple, and do it do it with something more complicated, like difficult emotions. It's much harder because difficult emotions are, we get into analysis and, and histories and judgments and shouldn't be this way, and it gets all very convoluted. But if you notice the type of emotion, say, well, what's it really like? What's fear like? Let's have it. And you can look at it like you look at the flower, and then it's still churning and uncomfortable, so on. But there's no thought around it. The thought's extra. It's not needed. Our, our analytical mind and our desire mind wants to figure it out, wants to get rid of it, think we shouldn't be like that. And, and that's all this sort of second level mediation through the media of thought. But we want to go directly to it. And the more you do these little exercises, the more they become skillful means, right effort. And it, it really comes from seeing that... That, that no object can really 
bring you peace of mind. So then you see, okay, good food is good. Uh, a warm blanket is good. Uh, having heating in the house is good, and flowers are great. So you don't deny that. You don't say that's wrong, because that would be a total misunderstanding. It's not rejection of objects. It's not the throwing away of objects. It's just seeing that objects have a limitation. They're useful, and we use them, and we're grateful. But if that's all there's about, then there's nothing spiritual about our life. It's, it's, spirit, it's materialism, isn't it? So we can get the material stuff good, and we can be very liberal in our attitudes and, and, and uh, be very ecological and, and uh, eat bean sprouts <laughs> or whatever. But there's nothing spiritual in that. So no diet is spiritual. No, no view on ecology is spiritual. No amount of vinaya, uh, monastic discipline is spiritual. These are conventions that we live by. So what's, what is the spiritual element of our life? It's that silence which is not dependent on objects, which knows objects as change. And so we're constantly emphasizing that which has a nature to rise, has a nature to cease, it's uncertain. Ajahn Shah's constant um, referencing of that, it's uncertain, it's uncertain, it's uncertain. Do that for a long time, see what happens to your mind. It's very hard to remember it. Do uncertainty for a month. You feel angry at someone, uncertain. You love someone, uncertain. You feel inspired, uncertain. Feel depressed, uncertain. <laughs> Just do it, do it a lot and see what happens. And that's that's a kind of contemplative exercise rather than a philosophy you believe in. A kind of dead Buddhist thing. Oh, really changes. Yeah, sure. But to kind of bring that perception to mind, apply it. So the 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 you know the, this retreat that we have is this excellent opportunity to experiment in this way. And, but see if you can come to that. Really notice the state of, of no thought. Notice the state when you're not trying to figure anything out or get anywhere. Because there's nowhere to get. That's the kind of irony of it. But it's very hard to stay in the present moment because desire keeps pulling us into objects. Mostly thought. Okay. Uh, I think that's it. Anyway. Please <laughs> <laughs>